Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got to see the importance of biblical theology. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Palou, and got a good show lined up for you guys today. We're going to be looking at at uh, the attribute uh, of omniscience. 
which is a pretty hot topic uh, in theology. And so we're going to be looking at a few different views of that, as well as giving a pretty good critique of open theism. So uh, if you guys uh, know anybody that is uh, open theist or or kind of leaning that way, have them listen to the show. Uh, we're going to open up the phone lines uh, for callers to call in uh, probably around 7 o'clock and uh, hoping to get some good rational uh, dialogue and discussion on this important topic. So stay with us for that. I uh, want to, again, thank Dr. Sadler for being with us last week. If you guys missed uh, the show last week, it was, it was really good. Spent uh, two hours looking over the uh, life of St. Anselm, some of his works that he has contributed to the Christian faith, as well as uh, spent a a good amount of time looking at his ontological argument for the existence of God, and uh, generated uh, a lot of good phone calls and good discussions. Uh, So that is actually uh, in the podcast section. As soon as the shows are over, the podcast is available. So if you actually go to our uh, Facebook page, uh, it is facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooze, facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooze, and we have a lot of different shows uh, on that site. Uh, we've had uh, we've done several debates. We did a debate with um, Nathan Taylor and Devin Rose on uh, the view of Sola Scriptura. Devin was representing the uh, Roman Catholic view. Nate was um, defending the Protestant view. We've uh, done a debate on the Christian view of God versus the Mormon view of God. Uh, We actually had the president of the Atheist Experience on, Matt Dillahoney, uh, came on and did a debate with uh, our good friend John Ferrer. So we've done done several debates. We've also done a lot of different shows, and uh, we've had a lot of really excellent thinkers on. We've actually had Dr. Norm Geisler on the show. We've had Dr. Paul Copan on the show. Uh, i trying to think. We've had, a, had a, a lot of amazing people. Shannon Guthrie has come on the show. We had Dr. Wynn Cordwin come and do a thing on Islam. So we cover a lot of topics. And, uh, you know, we don't make a dime from doing the show. It's a, it's a labor of love. The guests come on uh, because they're passionate about truth and care about truth. And so we just, you know, basically we just want to get the information out there. We want to we want to have people uh be able to you know, to have uh good intelligent rational discussion, dialogue and also see um you know, some of how these issues played out. A lot of a lot of times we don't really think um maybe as deeply as we should about some of these issues. Sometimes we're just it's not exposed uh, to the issues. So hopefully this show will definitely help to uh, equip you, to help you to be able to know what you believe and why you believe it. And we've got a lot of good stuff in the future as well. Uh, we're trying to set up a debate on um, the the view of hell. That is one thing that is, that is really starting to kind of get a lot of attention is um, the view of annihilationism. Does God uh, just annihilate people after they die, or is there uh, eternal conscious torment? And that would be the view I would hold. Uh, But we're looking at uh, setting up a discussion in the future with a few people, 
and uh, been in touch again with with Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience, and we're we're looking at having another uh, debate with him maybe in October, uh, with one of my actually one of my philosophy professors at Southern Evangelical Seminary. So stay tuned for that, and I think it's going to be pretty good. Uh, speaking also, speaking of Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, in October they will be hosting their national uh, conference on Christian apologetics. And if you guys have not been able to come to this conference, i got to tell you, you know, you're missing out. You're really missing out. You should come. You should do what you got to do to get here. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest conferences that they do in the United States. I know it's the longest running one that they've done. Uh, this year, uh, Dr. Norm Geisler is going to be there, one of my heroes of the faith. Uh, J.P. Moreland is going to be there speaking, which I'm super excited about. I have not got to hear him uh, speak live, so I'm really excited to, to meet him, and I think Josh McDowell and a few others. And it's right in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. So if anybody is, is in that area or, you know, I've, I've had friends that uh, – actually flew from out of state just to come to this conference. It's really that good. So it's about normally about two days. normally starts on Friday and uh, goes into Saturday night. So if you guys um, are looking for a good apologetics conference, let us know. Also, you know, feel free to message us on Facebook uh, with the Facebook page. Uh, also, I think uh, we have a Gmail account, uh, theologymatters at gmail.com. Let us know about any apologetic events in your area, and uh, we'll we'll definitely post them and we'll get them up and and mention them on air, uh, because again the you know the point is we want to get people to uh, uh, you know be equipped and be able to know kind of where to go to find some of the stuff that's going on. So let us know about any events that's that's going on. So with that being said, uh, I'm actually going to bring a guest on. And uh, pretty pretty interesting story. I'm going to let him kind of tell us about it. Um, I'll go ahead and bring him on right now. Christopher, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Doing great. Uh, great night um, in South Bend right now. Great weather. Uh-huh. So, yes. Hanging out, yep. Well, that's good, man. I I've, I heard about your story few, through a few different people, and uh, we wanted to, to get you on the show tonight and and uh, talk a little bit about uh, who you are and how you came to know the Lord and, and uh, maybe what you've got going on in the future. So tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Well, I was raised in Miami, Florida, um, in a single parent household, uh, my mother and I identified ourselves as Christians. However, it was merely a nominal uh, kind of commitment. My father left when I was about three years of age. Um, I have never met him. The most I've seen of him is in a picture I saw when I was uh, 12 years old. Um, as for my sister, she 
my biological sister, she rejected uh, Christianity in her early teens because she found the idea of a loving God who sent unrepentant sinners to hell morally repugnant. Um, Unless I spoke to her, I haven't spoken to her in a while. Uh, She told me how firmly she believed that the uh, deliverances of science were triumphant over the deliverances of religion in general and Christianity in particular. Um, However, aside from kind of talking about the ideas my parents held to, life was pretty rough for me growing up with my, my mother and father were absent for much of my life. Um, albeit my mother was there, she was often at work um, or doing doing uh, schooling, and uh, she wasn't that much of a good moral guidance to me. Um, if anything, her moral guidance was uh, tantamount to what you'd find on Dove chocolate wrappers or Chinese fortune cookies, both vague and really unhelpful. <laughs> so that really didn't set me up for um, the best kind of uh, life. So what were your – curious, what were your your personal religious views as you were growing up? Did you believe that God existed? Did you just kind of not think about those things or – Right. I, I I suppose if you were to ask me while growing up, do you believe in God, I would say yes. And if you said, do you believe that Jesus is his only son, I would probably affirm that as well. But beyond that, my faith wasn't tangible or palpable in any significant sense. But I, I would probably even uh, go on to correct someone who would use the name of God in vain. But beyond that, I... Um, really didn't think much about um, questions, religious questions like is there a God, what's his plan or purpose for human beings, if any. Um, I just lived my life. I was a pretty laid-back guy. Um, so that's that's, um, that's what I say in response to that question. Okay. What's, uh, so what kind of transpired after after that stuff had happened? Well, although I although I didn't often think much about questions of uh, of the sort that I just mentioned, I did have a sort of nagging feeling that there was something more to life. And this feeling was particularly acute whenever I was, say, at a party, um, at one of those crazy Miami parties that fulfills everyone's idea ideas about what a Miami party is. Even though I wasn't a Christian at that point, there was just something that seemed so senseless and purpose purposeless to the things that I saw before me. All the uh, drinking and taking drugs and um, moral promiscuity, it just seemed empty to me. Um, so you couple that innate desire I had with um, a friend of a friend who had recently become a Christian and was trying to live a holy life unto the Lord, who was trying to abstain from various vices that I 
thought were perfectly fine. That idea of living a holy life was probably the strangest thing that I that I had ever heard of. Um, oh. Primarily because I was all about following my own wind, so that just totally threw me off. So it was the oddity of the Christian life that first attracted me to it. Wow. That's interesting. Tell us about how uh, how you kind of got into apologetics. Right, well, that's a, that's a pretty funny story. Tenth uh, grade, ultimately after becoming a Christian, um, going into the summer of the 11th grade, my mother decided that she would homeschool me. This is mainly because she couldn't cover the cost of the private Roman Catholic all-boy high school I was attending. So she decides that she would homeschool me. However, she never really made a significant effort to do that. So this is the point where I begin to realize how important education is. Um, Prior to that, I was one of the worst students. If you ever saw the movie... Um, gifted hands, you know, Benjamin Carson, something like that. I, I did laughably bad in school because I just simply didn't care. Um, nonetheless, um, around that time, I had this desire to um, become an effective witness of the gospel. So I would go online, watch YouTube videos. I would, of course, hijack my neighbor's internet. They would sometimes leave their, uh, leave their internet open. In any event, uh, I stumbled upon uh, this video of this Christian philosopher who was presenting um, some of William Lane Craig's arguments from natural theology, and I was immediately captivated. I then bought some books um, of his from Amazon, and then I began to study them. Um, I studied his works, I listened to his debates, I tried to speak like him. I he was really the figure that that I uh, Hey Chris. Hey hey Chris. Yeah. You're you're coming yeah. in a little muffled. I'm not sure if there's a bad connection or um okay. can you can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, just uh just a little muffled. Not sure if there's there may not be <laughs> Anything you can do about it? I just want to make sure everybody can hear what you're what you're saying. So you say this time you started watching a lot of the videos and and getting the books and stuff like that, kind of right. introducing William yourself. Craig. Yeah, yeah. William Lane Craig was the um, main person that I um, listened to during this time, and then that um, that widen to other figures like J.P. Moreland and Richard Swinburne and Alvin Planiga and many others. Um, so during that period of about two years that I'm not going to school at all, what I mainly do is study philosophy and apologetics. Well, that's something, just kind of on your own, reading books and, and watching videos. Right. Right. Wow. So, uh, kind of, uh, I guess, kind of take us from there. What what happened after that? Was this 
I mean, I guess as you're reading these books and you're watching these videos, um, had you taken philosophy courses in that prior to this? And were you thinking that maybe this is something you wanted to uh, to go to college to do? Yeah, that's funny because prior to uh, familiarizing myself with people like William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland, I never it never occurred to me that one could major in thinking really hard about really big questions. So prior to um, familiarizing myself, it wasn't even on my horizon that I would become, say, a philosophy major or one day hopefully teach philosophy. It was only after um, reading them that that did become a legitimate option in my mind and just how things happened um, ultimately meeting Paul Copan and uh, him adopting me into his family. Uh, it's uh, Dr. Dr. Copan, and yeah, he's we actually had him on the show. He's he's one of my favorite apologists. Yeah. Maybe uh, you want to talk about that for for a few minutes. Yeah, sure. So I knew of Paul Copan because he co-authored with uh, William Lane Craig on uh, one book about, um, I think it was about the finitude of the cosmos, um, basically just that the universe is not eternal, and this finds support um, within early Christian doctrine. Um, So I heard of him through that work, and ultimately we go through a foreclosure in our house in Miami, Florida, we moved to a place called Weston, another city in Florida, which is relevant because Paul happened to be speaking um, at a church which was very close to where my house was at this point. So it was only foreclosure that opened up the opportunity to meet Paul. So ultimately I met him. We had a really nice time of conversation and he then invited me to his church in West Palm Beach. He told me if, if I had any rhyme or reason to be uh, to be there, that he would love to welcome me. So um, some months passed, and I just get this really strong inclination, kind of out of nowhere, to go to his church. So I did, and... And that was, and I went on a whim too because the guy is speaking all over the United States. So some days he's just not at church, but the day I went, he was there, and he remembered my name, which meant so much to me at the point. At that point, wow. Anyway, uh, I begin to get to know him over. I, this is, this story happens um, remarkably fast. I think I only go to his church twice. And then I tell him about my family situation, how it's far from ideal. My mother's animosity toward me has increased um, so much, and she was constantly threatening me to um, that she would kick me out or um, just curse me, really, for no for no uh, real reason, and. Uh, he comes back to me and he says that uh, he and his wife um, have prayed about this and if anything were to happen, I could live with them. 
So while I, I thought that that was a really nice, um, nice, nice display of, of affection and love, I thought to myself, look, Chris, I've lived with my mother all my life. I can endure this for, for some time. I, I really thought that Paul was a great guy, but I never thought that would happen. But then, oh. the very next Friday, my mother comes into my door with a white trash bag that she pops on the carpet, and she tells me in very colorful language that's not appropriate for a radio show to get out of the house. So, with trembling hands, I called um, the number that Paul and Jackie gave me. Um, Jackie is my mom. Um, and she answered saying that they were on um, their way to our house. So I packed up a bunch of random stuff. My mind was swirling at this, at this moment. And I began to walk um, to the gate where where, um, rather, Jackie and my sister, Johanna, were waiting to to uh, pick me up. And since then, I haven't – well, actually, I, I see my mother one more time a week later because Paul and I kind of have to break into my house <laughs> in order to retain some of my other belongings like social security um, card and other things so I can identify myself. And that was the last time I saw my mom. But – uh, saw my biological mother, but uh, since then I haven't. And the the date that I that all this occurred was September twenty fourth, two thousand ten. For some perspective, you say that you say that happened on December twenty fourth, two thousand ten. September twenty fourth, yes. Okay. Two thousand ten. Yeah. Well, man, I tell you, as I listen to this. It's just there, there's so many things that I'm thinking right now. I'm thinking just amazing sovereignty of God for yeah. keeping his hand yeah. on you, for saving you, for, you know, putting you in that situation. I'm also thinking, right. you know, I know so many so many believers, and I was one for a long time, that uh, were just lazy intellectually and didn't care to learn and didn't want to learn. And here you are just on yourself, by your own, with this hunger to to search and learn about the things of God. And then I'm also struck with Dr. Copan, who's, the guy is brilliant. I mean, I I love his work. His apologetics are incredible. But yet here he is, uh, you know, so much more than just a mind, but somebody who is actually, um, man, a real ambassador for Christ, not just in in word only, but deeds. I mean, I'm, I'm really just blown away. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's some great stuff that you said, and I definitely resonate with with all your points. I mean, especially when it comes to the sovereignty of God. You know, in retrospect, um, it was really God that had brought me through all this, and I shy away from any portrait of myself that's that's of me as a saint here, just persevering and just mouth filled with joy. I was really bitter at times, and um, at times I really didn't want to believe in God, but God was with me even in those moments, and God was preparing me for 
um, future things in a very evident way. So, yes, because of his faithfulness and his love, not my own, that that I was able to, that, I'm, that I am where I am right now. Take two minutes and tell us kind of about what you've got coming up. And uh, give it, give us, a, give us your website where we're uh, people who are listening uh, can help you out. Tell us, tell us about kind of your future plans. Take two minutes. Tell us about your future plans sure. and tell us, tell us how people can help you out. Sure. Well, I uh, gladly was accepted into the University of Oxford for a semester abroad program through the CCCU. That's the uh, Councils for Christian Colleges and Universities, and um, I'll be studying philosophy. Um, I haven't got, I haven't received the precise information about my tutorials yet, but I'll probably be studying either uh, philosophical theology, um, philosophy of religion, or um, a course on metaphysics and epistemology, or Plaga uh, Russell Wittgenstein philosophy language course. And uh, this will uh, happen during the spring semester of next year, so I leave for January the 10th. And all my details are, all of, all of these details are on my uh, funding page. It's uh, www.gofundme.com or .org, I'm not quite sure, um, but uh, forward slash get close to Oxford. Um, or you can go to my website, ChristMyRedeemer.org, and there I have a link to that uh, site. But I am so excited about um, the Oxford trip, and I am just so taken aback by the generosity of so many people, many that I didn't even know um, at all just have been so gracious to me. So that's that's what I have in store for the future. Well, brother, we're going to be definitely praying for you, you know, and I, I hope everything, you know, goes well. And, uh, you know, we need we need more guys like you out there and uh, to, to proclaim the truth and defend the truth and, uh and, you know, let us know, because we definitely want you back on the show. When, when are you leaving? I leave the 10th of January. 10th of January. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, I'll talk to you after after the show. I'll, I'll get with you. And uh, we want to follow your journey, definitely. So right. we'll, we'll talk and, and have you back on and give us updates. And uh, you're, you're a real encouragement, you know, and I'm just – Thankful for you and Dr. Copan, and we're going to be praying for you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show as well. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my story and experiences. Hey, it's our our pleasure, man. Thanks for coming on, and uh, like I say, we'll be in contact, and we'll have you back on again. All right. Peace to you. All right, man. God bless. All right, well, uh, amazing story, very um, amazing story. You know, it's just a lot of times apologists get this this rap for being dry and all all head, no heart, and I've I've never I've never believed that. I've never bought into that because I've known too many uh, apologists that uh, 
they're just not like that. Their life's not like that. Not saying, you know, there's none like that, but uh, I don't find that the majority are like that. So very, very encouraging, very encouraging. It shows you what uh, a willing heart and discipline can do. Here's this, this kid, you know, studying these books uh, on his own, you know, in his in his room, um, just to kind of escape the circumstances of life. So it just uh, never, never ceases to amaze me how God works in our lives. So uh, what we're going to do now, we're going to go ahead and transition um, into the topic of the program. We're going to be dealing with the omniscience of God. And uh, I'm going to push Matt, uh, our guest, Matt Graham, uh, we're going to have him kind of explain a few of the other attributes just so it kind of works out. Um, but what I'm going to do first is I'm going to take a quick commercial break, 30 seconds, and then uh, we will come back and uh, we will have our guest. Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year's going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.crossexamined.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply. All right. Yeah, and I would definitely encourage uh, friends out there, if you guys are not familiar with Cross-Examined, the ministry, Great ministry. Uh, I've been blessed with them for years, and they have a really awesome training out here at Southern Evangelical Seminary, um, where they will have uh, they only have Richard, uh, Dr. Richard Howe, uh, who's one of the professors of philosophy there. They have Greg Kokel from Stand to Reason. He normally comes out. Brett Kunkel has been there. I know Dr. Phil Fernandez uh, was there one time. So it's a, it's a great opportunity uh, for those who are wanting to come out. And basically, you're going to go through a boot camp on how to defend the Christian faith. And uh, the basic, I think the, the basic source of that is uh, Dr. Geisler and Turk's book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That's pretty much 12 points uh, that they run run you guys through. And uh, and after, after it's over, uh, I think you are um, a certify you to be a cross-examined instructor and uh, I mean it's it's from dealing with laws of logic to the origin of life to the fine-tuning of the universe um, to evolution to the reliability of the Bible to the resurrection of Christ so you'll you'll know those things very well um, and then you'll be you'll be kind of certified to, to represent them and speak at churches or campuses so it's a, it's a pretty cool thing so if you're interested in that, uh, again, go to facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooze. You can message us. We can get you some more information or go to crossexamined.org. All right. Well, let's kind of transition now into our show. Um, we're going to be looking at the attribute of omniscience. And we have uh, my good friend Matt Graham who received his uh, Master of Arts in Religion from Southern Evangelical Seminary. And uh, we're going to look at some of these issues like uh, open theism, divine foreknowledge, uh, does God change his mind, some of these some of these kind of difficult things that will come up. And 
can cause confusion. I've, I've personally seen it a lot. So we thought it'd be a good idea to have this show. So Matt, are you there? I am. How are you doing tonight, my friend? Doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. How oh, are you doing? No problem. Can you? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. I can. Yeah. Can you hear me? All right. I can hear you good and loud and clear. Good. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know I. I it was kind of a quick introduction. Tell us about your wife and kids, and and maybe uh, any areas of study that you particularly like to do. Yeah, well, um, after having listened to all the people that have been on your show, I was like, oh, man, I'm just some normal guy that does IT work oh, and no. kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, oh, I, do, no. I do IT work and uh, have a, an amazing wife, Jill, and uh, son, Wesley, who's four and a half, almost five, and a young daughter who's almost six months. So we're wow. in the Charlotte area. Um, we've enjoy hanging out with uh, friends from church and from seminary and, and discussing these types of issues. So that's, uh, that's about it, really. We're, we're pretty uninteresting people, especially compared to uh, <laughs> all the people we've had on your show. So. No, not at all, man. You guys are, you guys are awesome. What's, uh, what's some of the areas that you particularly like to study? I really like the area of uh, philosophical anthropology and uh, in particular, I'm kind of focusing on the nature of emotion. Um, one of the reasons I like it, the nature of emotion is, uh, well, it's not talked about that much, but also because it seems to be a, a non-rational aspect of uh, the human person that apologists don't take into account very much. So I'm really interested in studying that, that aspect of us that seems to be neglected, but I'm also interested in it because uh, emotions seems to be something that contributes to our life, the quality of our lives. I mean, if you if you can imagine a life without emotion, it'd be kind of a, a bland, boring, uninteresting in in some ways. Uh, I, th- I think emotion, the fact that we can appreciate beauty and it's not just recognize it, but appreciate it and enjoy it, that kind of thing, um, that that fascinates me. I don't know, man. Spock seemed to have a <laughs> Spock seemed to have a pretty fascinating life. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, was inconsistent. He's an inconsistent character. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's good. Uh, I know one of the areas also that you you like to study that uh, I've learned. I really do, man. I I think very highly of you. I've learned a ton from you, and always uh, always hitting this poor guy up on Facebook, bombarding him with questions. Uh, but one of the one of the things I really like talking with you about is the attributes of God. And I know we're going to talk some about um, omniscience, but I figure maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the other attributes of God that maybe tie it all together. Does that does that work for you? Or? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there, um, did you have something to say on that, or is that? Well, I mean, uh, tell us. You know, uh, what are some of the attributes of God, and how do they maybe? relate to each other, and, and um, maybe we could even talk a, a few minutes. I mean, we've got almost an hour and a half. Um, maybe contrasting some of the views um, between the classical view of God and maybe some of the other views of God. Yeah, I take the classical view to be the, the Thomistic view of divine simplicity, um, where God is um, has no parts. Um, he's, un, uh, he's completely... No, 
Yeah, break Sorry. this down for us. Because, yeah, I was just going to say, make sure you you uh, talk in layman terms for us and break this down uh, just so we can follow along with what you're saying. He's, he's sharp, folks. No, so I'm just saying uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity really um, doesn't mean that God's simple, doesn't mean that he's a simpleton or anything like that. It's talking about his being, that he's not composed of any kind of parts. Um and the implications on, on God's attributes are that God's different attributes aren't different parts of God, or um, like like in us we have we're composed of uh, different parts physically, um, we're composed of different parts in the soul, we're composed of different uh, parts metaphysically. God is not composed of different parts, and the, the, basically the, the, the Thomistic reason for for viewing God in that way is uh, given in, in, in the Summa Contra Gentilis, basically, is in Thomas's writings, where he says, look, if, if, things are, if things in creation are composed, then God, there must be an uncomposed composer. Um, and really working that out and fleshing out what that means is, is where Aquinas' doctrine of God comes from and where he, he uh, elaborates on every other philosophical doctrine and sees other... other other theology, his other theology in light of that doctrine of God. So, that, I, I take that uh, to be. A, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. go ahead. I, I take that no, to be the fine. classical go statement ahead. of of, of uh, theology proper, or who, the nature of God. How does this work out, kind of uh, in modern, I guess, academia today? Is is the classical view still kind of like the predominant view, or is there other? views or um it's the its influence has really uh, diminished um, a lot more people uh, helen planning is very critical of the doctrine of simplicity and he's a very influential philosopher and there have been a lot of other philosophers who've, who've denied that though they'll, they'll say things like william lane craig will say things that uh, god's not necessarily simple in his being but that uh, his knowledge is simple so they, they may retain what they think to be certain aspects of the doctrine of simplicity without affirming simplicity. So, yeah, it, it, it's okay. fallen away some, but I, I, my understanding is that there's also some, uh, re, there's some more interest of, of late that's uh, come about in simplicity. Okay, that's awesome. Let's, um, let's look at some of the, some of the attributes then. I guess maybe we could start with, um, with, uh, omnipresence. What is, what exactly is omnipresence. What do, what do we mean when we say God is omnipresent? We mean that God is present to every every place. So there's there's no place where God is not present to something. Uh, that doesn't mean physically. Um, again, when you, we don't want to just say that God is physically present at every single place. God isn't physical, um, but He is present everywhere. That's that's essentially what it is. Yeah, I remember when I was I was doing this with uh, talking with the young group of uh, college students about this, and we were going over the attributes of God, and um, the issue of uh, of this had had come up of of uh, omnipresence, and um, they were confused as to whether uh, people in hell were still in the presence of God. They couldn't fathom that people in hell uh, right. would still be in the presence of God. How would you answer that? I'd say they are in the presence of God. Um, God is present to every created thing, and that includes 
um, people who are in hell that includes de the devil and demons he sustains their existence if he wasn't uh, causally related to them if he wasn't uh, present to them then they wouldn't they wouldn't exist so yeah he, he is present to them um, now they are seeing his wrath they're not seeing his uh, his goodness they're, well they're not seeing his goodness expressed in, in the way that people will see it expressed in heaven um, but yeah God is present to them let me ask you this, just because this was actually another thing that was brought up, is when we pray, um, you know, Lord, be with us this week. Um, if all my presence is, is true, then he's <laughs> He's He's with us um, all the time, right? Yeah, but I, I think there's we got to be careful, too, is that th that's true. But um, I think when people pray that, there's, there's a difference between how, how laity speak about God and how you know, theologians and philosophers speak about God. And I would be a little wary of, you know, just outright dismissing their, their, what they're saying um, because it's not completely theological accurate, theologically accurate. There may be something that they're saying in there that is, uh, uh, has a nugget of truth in that, that they want them. There's, there's something else other than God's presence that I'm necessarily look. What does it mean? God be with me. Usually when we say that, we're saying, look, God be with me in this circumstance. Guide me through it. Um, uh, help me to endure it. That kind of thing. Yeah, and I, uh, while it is, isn't, well, it's theologically correct to say, you know, he, he's always present with you. It's, it's not like he right. can leave you without, you know, you ceasing to exist. But, yeah, I, I, it, so I'm kind of taking you away from your question there, but. Oh no, no, you're fine. That's that's you know what I had had told them was there's different senses in which uh, you know God can be with us. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Right, different. Like you say, the circumstances and that. One of the other attributes, one of the questions, you know, one of the old favorite college professor um, questions is if if God is so powerful, can He make a rock uh, so big that He cannot lift it? So with omnipotence. How does how does those type of questions play out, and what exactly does it mean to say God is omnipotent? It means that He's all powerful, um, and He can do anything that uh, God can do, which is anything that's not logically incoherent. So, so saying that God can't create a square circle or something like that doesn't uh, mitigate His omnipotence. It's just a faulty understanding of terms when you talk like that. Well, God can't create a square circle, then he's not all-powerful. No, it's that's like saying, if God can't create, then he's not all-powerful. Well, that, that's a confusion on, on the human side, not not a lack of powerfulness in God. Um, but to yeah. the, the, the dilemma of the stone that you just referred to, um, yeah. the, it creates a false sort of criterion for what it takes to be omnipotent. Uh, and then says God doesn't meet that criteria, therefore God's not omnipotent. God can create whatever size stone he wants, and then he can lift it. Why would I pit those two against each other unnecessarily? There's, if God is all-powerful, that's just what we mean. He can create whatever size rock he wants, and then he could lift it. So can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? He want, they're trying to trap you and say, well, if you say yes, you have a problem, and if you say no, you have a problem. But the problem is in, in the way the question's posed. And that's, that's yeah, a common tactic, too, is that um, they'll try to pit the divine attributes against each other to try to show some incoherency uh, in, in our notion or concept of God. 
And uh, typically what a lot of the contemporary apologists and philosophers will do is they'll try to redefine or make some kind of qualification in, in, in what, it, what the attribute means or uh, the nature of God. So. I remember C.S. Lewis, uh, I think it was in The Problem of Pain, um, you know, and he said just because you can string a bunch of words together doesn't mean it's logically coherent or that God could, could do it. Just because you utter nonsense doesn't mean that that is something that can be, you know, actually done. Yeah, God's, you know. God's nature and glory isn't impugned because your bad ability of re- your lack of ability to reason correctly. Yes, very good. Talk just for a minute, I guess, about uh, the doctrine of impassibility. What, what exactly is is that doctrine? Well, let me, let me before I say um, that, uh, I would just want to say that when when, I'm, when we're talking here, I know we're talking on a lay level. So there, there, in all of these different attributes, there's uh, there's discussion on what these things mean and the nature and extent of them and that kind of thing. So when I say the doctrine of when I talk about the doctrine of impassibility, I just you know want people to be out there who haven't studied this much to realize that impassibility. Uh, some people take impassibility to mean one thing and uh, impassibility to mean another thing. What's common among the views is that, or the, a basic statement of it is, is that God is without passions. Um, and when we talk about passions, typically what we're talking about is uh, emotions. So um, the medieval sense of passion meant to be to be able to be affected in some way. Um, but when Aquinas talks about passions and one of this current contemporary discussions on the nature of the passions, uh, they usually uh, make passions and emotions equivalent. And then, uh, so when we talk about the doctrine of impassibility, we're saying that God doesn't have any any emotions. Or we might say that uh, there, there might be a qualified sense in which God has emotions, and they think that uh, that still qualifies as impassibility. So I think Dr. Geisel would say something like God has unchanging emotions, and he would he would say that that would be a, a one kind of doctrine of impassibility. Um, Aquinas is, seems to be a little more uh, would not say that. I don't think. Um, I think he would say no. God does not have uh, he doesn't have emotions. So he doesn't have passions. Talk to us a little bit about um, the doctrine of um, immutability and how and and maybe we can talk about how that ties in with uh, the topic today. Okay, yeah, immutability just means that God cannot change in his being, that uh, he's perfectly complete, and as such that uh, any change in him um, is impossible. That's a basic statement of it. Okay. Well, uh, let's let's look into, uh, I guess, this, this issue of, um, of omniscience. Now we kind of have a better picture of God and his, uh, and his attributes. What is omniscience, and uh, kind of why is it important that we that we understand this and get it right? Um, omniscience just refers to, again the fact that God is all knowing; He knows everything. Uh, he knows all true propositions. He, he knows everything, both uh, necessary, contingent. Um, he, he he knows everything. If there's a proposition has a truth value, He knows He knows that it's true. Um, or he knows he knows the value of that that proposition. So it's it's important, um, I think, because it it either fits or does not fit nicely with the classical doctrine of God. Um, it's important because it has implications on what we're going to talk about tonight. 
in the nature of free will, like it does have implications on whether or not we have free will, and that's that's I think really the biggest contention or the biggest issue that we're trying to work out, and why omniscience and, and in particular foreknowledge um, of future of the future uh, is such a a heated debate sometimes, and there's there's a lot of emotion involved in it because what's at stake, at least on the face of it, is if God is all knowing, um, including knowing everything that I'll do in the future, then it seems like I don't have free will. Now there's other issues that come after that. You know, once 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 you start really talking about the, the doctrine of foreknowledge uh, and omniscience. And there's questions about, well, if God knows everything infallibly, then does God have free will, or does it give him any providential advantage, or anything like that? So there, there's a lot of issues, but I think really at the heart of what initiates the debate or the discussion is, if God is all-knowing, then do we really have free will? Right. Right, and I guess the problem of evil would also kind of fall into that, right? Yeah, there's to be what uh, open theism is. It seems to be the, those two issues. Um, well, let me say up front, I know we have uh, a lot of different listeners. I know we have Arminians. I know we have Calvinists. And uh, the the goal is not to, uh, to start a war or anything like that. I think we just want to kind of look at the, the those views that are within orthodoxy, mm-hmm. Molinism, Thomism, and whatnot, uh, but I, I do think there are some severe issues with with open theism. So, just for the people listening out there, uh, you know, um, I know there's there's different perspectives on this. Uh, so, in about uh, 15 minutes or so, we're going to go ahead and open open the phone lines. And if you have questions, you know, we definitely uh, would love to hear from you. So. Uh, as, as Matt is talking, um, I would maybe write down any questions that you have, uh, so you don't don't forget what you wanted to ask him. And in about uh, about uh, seven ten or so, we'll go ahead and open up the, the phone lines and let you guys uh, ask your questions to Matt. Hopefully, we'll get some calls. Um, but uh, I'll just I'll kind of turn it over to you, Matt, and let uh, maybe let you explore the different views. Okay. So historically, the, the two we'll call orthodox positions have been the uh, the Thomistic position and, and the uh, Molinistic position, and I, I would like to differentiate these from um, Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, or some other kind of variant of the two. Uh, in that, I, I I would maintain that uh, you can hold one or the other view, and and this and that there's some interchangeability with uh, Molinism or Thomism and Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, I think it's not uh, completely symmetrical there, but I, I think those are two separate things. What I'm talking about here tonight mostly is going to be more of a philosophical, what what do these doctrines espouse um, and why do they espouse them, um, what they imply what the, and what the, the major problems are in, in these things. So. The Thomistic view and the Molinistic view are are ways of upholding that God knows everything and that man is free. Both of them want to affirm that. Um, and in fact, you know, Calvinists and Arminians both want to affirm that, that um, God knows everything exhaustively and that that doesn't uh, mitigate human free will. There's an initial sort of uh, um, intuition that people have that 
in order for a person to be morally responsible for their actions, that they have to have free will. They have to have what uh, um, is called in philosophical circles the power of alternative possibilities or the power of contrary choice. And if they don't have it, that they're not morally responsible. If Now, if we look at the, uh, God's knowledge of the creation, of, of creation, and he knows every single thing that happens exhaustively, can he be wrong about that? No, because he knows it. Well, if he can't be wrong about it, and he knows everything exhaustively, how can I do other than what God has already known will happen? Right, so this sets up the problem. And the, the immediate implication seems to be, if God knows everything, well, then humans don't have free will because I could not do contrary to what he knows. Right? So that's, that's the main problem. Um, some people try to avoid this problem by saying, uh, well, God just knows it. He, had, he's, he stands on top of It's like God's standing on top of a mountain looking at an entire train. He sees the end from the beginning. And uh, he sees what, what happens, and he knows it in that way. And uh, that, that solution doesn't seem to be uh, one that Orthodox Christians can hold to. Uh, or at least I should say ones that I want to be careful how I use that term but um, it, it doesn't seem to be one that's been historically held I'll say that and the reason is is because of uh, God's aseity God's self-existence God's um, if God is pure act then God doesn't depend in any way on the creation and that includes his knowledge so for the person who wants to say, you know, God just knows it because he sees it in some perceptual kind of way, uh, the, the classical response would be, that can't be because God is self-existent and God in no way depends on the creation, and that includes his knowledge. So he knows everything, and his knowledge of everything doesn't depend on what will happen. Okay. Yeah, that's that's good. That's... that's uh... I guess so. What are some of the what is what is it that um, what is a lot of the dispute over then? So in the uh, the time of the Jesuits, the, the dispute was between the Molinists and the Dominicans was something called middle knowledge. In in classical theology, there was God's natural knowledge and God's free knowledge, and God's God's natural knowledge was basically knowledge of everything that He could possibly do, and uh, knowledge of all. Um, all things possible. Uh, and his free knowledge is knowledge of what he decreed will happen. So historically, that's, those have been the two types of knowledge, and a lot of people to this day still hold that. But Molinism introduced another type of knowledge called middle knowledge. And middle knowledge is knowledge of what free creatures would do if they're put in any, any kind of circumstance, circumstance X. So... If Joe was put in circumstance X, Joe would do this. That's the kind of knowledge that's contained in middle knowledge. It's a sub, maybe uh, sometimes people consider it a subset of God's natural knowledge. Um, but that knowledge doesn't come about, even for the Molinists, that knowledge does not come about by God's looking out and seeing what people would do in any given circumstance. Uh, it, it's God just knows it. Um, like he knows everything else, his knowledge is self-contained, his knowledge is uh, simple, but he has this this third kind of knowledge for a Molinist. 
and that, that's what differentiates between the Molinist and the Thomist. What some of the strengths for the Molinist view? What is it that? Because uh, I know it's, it's very attractive uh, to a, to an awful lot of people, and some of the best uh, evangelical um, thinkers today seem to really have adopted that. So, what's what's some of the? What is it about it that people like so much? What are some of the attractive parts of it? Well, for Arminians, the attractive part is that, at least in the face of it, Molinism seems to offer a view of God's knowledge that is compatible with libertarian free will. And I should probably talk a little bit about the different views of free will so that we, we know what we're, we're talking about. Um, sure. Libertarian free will basically says that free will and determinism are incompatible. So when we talk about determinism, we say that all of the all of the all actions that are currently happening are the necessary result of uh, well I shouldn't say they are the result of previous antecedent conditions. Right. So my talking to you on the phone tonight, if I'm a determinist, um, broadly speaking, is that I, I I was determined by whatever number of factors, my heredity, environment, my upbringing, my my psychological need to talk on. Devin's show, all of these kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> and if all things are determined by factors other than me, the libertarian says that's that that just can't be. Uh, but it's also the, but primarily the libertarian says I have to have I have to be able to not talk on Devin's show in order for me to genuinely be free. All of these antecedent conditions are prior conditions cannot necessitate my talking on your show. I have to have the ability to not talk on your show in order to have genuine free will. Um, so they're going to say free will and determinism are incompatible. Free will exists, and therefore determinism is false. Okay. A lot of In some cases, uh, libertarians will appeal to something like uh, quantum indeterminacy to, to try to account for free will. Um, some, some will try to account for it by... Kant's noumenal self, and others will say that uh, free will exists because we have we are as, we are agents. Um, so there's a number of ways that libertarians try to account for why we make specific decisions, um, even though they're they're undetermined. Okay. So that's, a, well, that's a libertarianism view. I don't know if you had anything to add on that, or if you want me to elaborate on anything there, but. How uh, how popular I guess is that today among um, your your Christian philosophers? And and let me ask you one other question: Is there um, between like Catholics and I guess Orthodox and Protestant? Is there uh, some of them that fall in one camp more than the other? Um, well, there's there's libertarians and now there's actually three views: there's libertarianism, compatibilism, and uh, there's another type of in, incompatibilism called hard determinism. So nobody, hardly anybody is a hard determinist, meaning that they think all actions, hu including human actions, are determined, and free will is just an illusion. So that's, that's one we'll throw out right now because that's not a very popular view. Um, but libertarianism and compatibilism are seen in, in certainly in Protestant and uh, Catholic circles. So, so both views are held by both sets of... Uh, uh, believers. Let me ask you this: with uh, with the Molinism, is there is that kind of a popular thing within Roman Catholicism too, or is that mainly just uh, with with Protestants? Or 
There are Catholic Molinists, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know how popular it is, but yeah, certainly that was that was a debate that uh, began a long time ago um, after the Reformation and uh, continues to this day even in Roman Catholic circles. Okay. Um, but the, one of the, the I think the main appeal is is that it sees the human will as something that needs to be taken account of, different from the rest of creation, right? So they're going to say, look, God needs to have this this other knowledge, otherwise He won't know what will happen when I choose to do this or that, because it's indeterminate. Um, and God has to know all true propositions. I don't want to. I don't want to. They would say, look, I don't want to be an open theist. I want to be um, in keeping with what the church has historically stated about God's knowledge. Um, and they, they, they think that uh, Molinism does that. It upholds both libertarian free will and uh, God's perfect knowledge of everything that is, was, and will be. And uh, the Catholic Church basically came down and said both the, the, the Thomistic or Dominican view and the Molinist positions are within the realm of orthodoxy. And largest being, I think, in Protestant circles, that's the case too. There's there's some extreme groups who would say, no, if you're a Molinist, you're a heretic, or no, if you're a you're a Thomist, then you're a heretic. But generally speaking, the, those two views are acceptable views. What uh, what do you see as maybe some of the weaknesses of uh, the Molinist view? Really, it's the 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 weakness of it is the grounding objection. That that's really uh, William Hasker in his book. I thought did a, a fairly good job of. Um, exposing that, but it's not just him. I mean, it's been around for a long time. The question is, uh, what's the ground? What's what's the ground in reality for God's knowledge of this middle knowledge? How does he know what free creatures would do in any given circumstance? So when I say Henry would do X in such and such circumstances, how does God know that? Because the circumstances themselves don't determine Harry's actions. But neither does God, because he, these creatures have libertarian free will. So if okay. the circumstances don't determine the, the actions, if uh, all antecedent conditions don't determine the actions of, of Harry um, when, he, when he's making a choice, then and how does God know that? Um because there doesn't seem to be any kind of grounding for that knowledge. At least with natural knowledge, God knows everything that he's able to do. It's him. And in his free knowledge, he knows everything that he's chosen to do. <clears throat> but this middle knowledge, where does that come from? Right. Interesting. Let's uh, let's do this, because we've had a few people call. Let's go ahead. Uh, is it okay if we open the, the phone lines, Matt? Do you mind? No, not at all. Okay, let's go ahead and, and let's go to the phone lines. Uh, the number to call is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Hello, caller, are you there? Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you. What, uh, what oh, is hi, your name? This, and, is, uh, and... this is Nate Taylor. I've been on the show before. Hey, Nate, how's it going? Good, good. I just have a question for Matt here. Yeah. yeah. Um, Matt, uh, you think all people can be saved, right? Or, I'm, I'm sorry, you think God desires to save all people, right? Yes. Um, and you say that 
he desires that in his um, antecedent will, but not it doesn't happen in his consequent will, correct? Yes. Okay, what in his uh, consequent will would prevent um, him from saving all people? The free choice of human creatures. But you're a compatibilist, right? Yes. So God would determine their actions? I'm sorry? God would determine their actions, right? In a sense, yes. So if God can determine their actions, why doesn't he determine them all to be saved? Because determination doesn't necessitate, the kind of determination that I'm talking about doesn't necessitate the will. Oh, okay. So when God causes them, the creatures could resist that will? Yes. Okay. What else uh, determines their wills other than God, if it's sufficiently caused by them or antecedent factors? I believe in an agent causality. A compatibilistic one that's determined by something prior to the to the will acting, correct? Yes, but not in, probably not in the way you're thinking of it. So I, I don't know exactly what you're thinking of, but just in these kind of conversations, usually um, people have in mind some kind of event-type causality. So when we, we talk about cause, we're probably equivocating on the term. Oh, okay. Um, well, yeah, there's different views of causation, like the the bringing about uh, production analysis of causation, or the you know primitive view of causation, but um, do, you, do you think that um, the causal, that, that there's something causally producing the creature to act sufficiently prior to their action? Can you restate the question? Yes, of course. So, uh, prior to the creature's choice mm -hmm. to believe in Jesus or not to will to believe in Jesus, mm -hmm. um, prior to that creature acting, um, mm -hmm. Is there some sort of um, sufficient chain of causality that produces their action? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And God does that? God cause that? Uh, yes. Yeah, He does. Does He sufficiently cause that? See, sufficiently. I know what you mean by sufficiently, but you mean. Um, and, and all, all it would take is God acting in that previous causal chain. Yeah, if it's sufficient, the, 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 if the result obtains. Right? right. So, okay, that's fair. So why doesn't God sufficiently cause that chain to make that creature saved? Because I believe that, that uh, God allows people to have a role causally in their, uh, in their actions. Okay, so, um, but it's sufficient, though. If it's sufficient and, and it's deterministic, that causal chain that produces that creature's action, then they couldn't have done any, dif done any differently and uh, sufficient uh, as it's applied in uh, theology and philosophy is something which is such that, you know, the, the action is enough to produce the result. So God could then produce that result in that causal chain, producing the creature then to act, and then he could get God's desired, you know, end of having all the creatures saved. Mm. Could, could you state that a little more concisely? Uh, I'll try. <laughs> um, so uh, you said that there is a sufficient causal chain um, prior to the creature's action, and that causal chain produces a creature to act, right? Mm -hmm. And that it does so sufficiently. And then God also acts on that causal chain prior, you know, to it acting on the creature. He acts on it in a certain way sufficiently, which then brings about that causal chain, which then is applied to the creature, 
sufficiently for him to act. So my question is, why couldn't, and this is not more succinctly, it's just I guess it's more explanatory sure. and thorough. Um, my question, as I, I'm think, as I'm thinking about it, why doesn't God cause sufficiently that causal chain, which then sufficiently produces the creature's actions a certain way, mm-hmm. causes on his agency, and is in a, in a deterministic, compatibilistic sense, why doesn't he just cause that causal chain to be of such a character that it brings about uh, the creature's decision to believe in Jesus or to be saved? So the why are you asking like a final cause for that? Are you um, why no, he no. doesn't allow that, or why he doesn't yeah, bring everyone to salvation? Yeah, because presumably he would efficiently act upon that causal chain, and then yeah, so it would be the final cause. Why doesn't he? Yeah, in other words, what 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 thwarts him in that? Since the causal chain, yeah, obviously is we do deterministic. Um, yeah, so, we do. We thwart okay, him. Okay, so we. And, so, it, and I hate to use that word because that, that has such a I, – I don't, I don't mean thwart because I know, you know, James White and those guys, when they talk about God, thwarting God's will, it's, it's heavily pejorative. And I, I don't mean it that way. What I mean is that what, what, is, what is the explanation for why we, we all are not saved? The explanation is, is us. Okay, okay, but our, our it's choice. It's not just that. I don't want to say it's just that because it's not just No, no, that. yeah, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not going for that. I'm not asking that, so don't worry about that. No, no, no big deal at all. Um, so, but I mean, you, someone exerts their will in a certain way, say, rejecting Christ, thereby not being saved. What determines them to, um, to reject Christ? Let me, let me put it that way. What determines them to reject Christ? They do. What determines them to do that? Well, see, I think you're, you're thinking of things, because even the causal chain that you're talking about, this determinism that you're speaking about, is, uh, my... I don't know because we haven't fleshed it out, but my guess is that you're speaking of some kind of event-type causality, where, where when you when you see a, de- a deterministic chain, you're thinking in terms of all right, we've got like this uh, this pool table where ball this ball necessitates the action of a ne- uh, another ball, and um, you, you have all these set of series of events that are necessitated by prior antecedent events physically in, in an event in a succession of events. The type of causality that I'm talking about is an act potency, an enabling type of causality. So there's just, um, in some free will discussions, they'll talk about it as what's called a non-occurrent. I don't, I don't even know if those are equivalent, like an act potency and a non-occurrent type cause, but uh, I know you're in analytic, on the analytic side, yeah. so I don't know so if that, that would help. That, that's correct, yeah. No, that's that's basically correct. Um, so, but, so, but you do believe they're determined, the agent is determined, right? Um, in some sense, yes. Sufficiently determined? Well, what, when you say the agent is sufficiently determined, are you saying the agent is sufficiently determined to do action X? Such that, yeah, such that he can't do otherwise. Such that all, all that would take is that prior um, existing condition to Not that he can't do otherwise. No, it's, it's still, there's contingency involved. Oh, yeah. so so we so so we can do otherwise. There's well, just because he's contingent doesn't necessitate that you can do otherwise either. Now we're getting into a high-level philosophical discussion. I don't know if that's what. That oh no, I I, I mean I, I was just you know most determinists take it that you can't do otherwise, but I guess it doesn't sound like to me that you're a determinist. Well, even compatibilists would say that you can do otherwise if you will. If actually, you will, no, actually, they, actually they, they don't. Um, John Martin Fisher doesn't. 
Um, I, I, I mean, I, even, even non-compatibilists, in, incompatibilists, some of them hold that you, you can't do otherwise. So at least the bare minimum determinist should at least uh, reject half or the principal alternative possibility. Um, it just seems to me. But um, but anyways, I'll, I don't want to take up too much of the show. I'll, it was good talking to you. Yep, good talking to you. All right, have a good day. Thank you. God bless. God bless. Thanks for calling, Nate. Appreciate it, buddy. Good stuff. Always a good conversation. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's do this. Let's take a break uh, for a minute and uh, take a take about a two minute break, and then we'll come back and we'll continue to uh, look at some of the different views of omniscience. And uh, again, phone lines uh, are open seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And we'll go ahead and take a break and be back in. Uh... Welcome to the one minute apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute, apologist, to be able to unpack. For the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. The age-old question, has God said? That question has echoed into the 21st century, and still today many people question the reliability of God. And as Christians, we hear that the Bible is not reliable. How do you respond to somebody who says, Dr. Geyser, the Bible is not reliable? Well, my response is, um, God can't err. The Bible is the Word of God, therefore... Uh, the Bible cannot err. So if you're going to deny that conclusion, you have to deny one or more of those two premises. So tell me, uh, can God err? The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. You know, Romans 3-4. The Bible says uh, it's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6-18. The God who cannot lie, Titus 1-2. So if God can't err, and the Bible is the Word of God. And the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Jesus said it's the Word of God in, in John 10, 34 and 35, and Matthew uh, 15, uh, 1 to 5. He said, you do exalt your traditions above the Word of God. And the Word of God cannot be broken in John 10, 35. But if the Bible is the Word of God, then God can't err. Then the Bible can't err. Now to ask him one more question. If God is omniscient, if he knows everything, how many mistakes can an omniscient mind make? An omniscient mind can't make any mistakes, not in geography, not in history, not in science, not in anything. Well, if the Bible is the Word of God, then write it down. There aren't any mistakes there. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. 
All right, we are back, and we are looking at the attributes of God and specifically looking at the attribute of God's uh, omniscience. And we have my good friend uh, Matthew Graham here with us, kind of walking us through some of these differing views and uh, had a good good exchange here between uh, between Nate and Matt, a uh, good, good discussion on that. Uh, let me open the phone lines uh, again. You want to put on that real quick, Nate? Or, uh, I, didn't, I didn't mean to cut Nate off there. I, I was just I wasn't sure if we were. Uh, I'll say this on my views on free will and determinism. That is something I'm studying. I don't know that I have my uh, a definite view on that. Um, so I just I, I didn't mean to. I wasn't being rude to Nate or to you by uh, if I was trying to cut cut oh. anybody off. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't take it as you were you were being being rude or or anything. I think that was a, a really good discussion, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I think the listeners are gonna gonna like that and benefit from that, and and appreciate you guys both uh, being willing to to dialogue and talk about that a little bit. Maybe we can set up a set up a show. <laughs> Try to say that three times fast. <laughs> Set up a show down uh, in the future, maybe let you guys uh, talk about some of that stuff. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah the number uh, to call in, uh, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Where did you want to go next with that, uh, uh, Matt? I don't know if you really got to talk about compatibilism or maybe the – I guess you kind of did the, the Mullen view, so – Maybe we can talk a little bit about the Thomistic view and some of the strengths and weaknesses you see in that. Yeah, the uh, the Thomistic view really is. Um, I think it's hard for a lot of people to get their their minds around because it is a very uh, deeply metaphysical position. Um, and when they hear, and I can actually understand, you know, Nate's questions is why why would I say what I'm saying? It seems very inconsistent. And it may, there may, it may very well be. I don't know that I fleshed all my views out completely. But with regard to Thomas and his view of knowing what uh, is different from the very common sense idea that, well, God can just know things by looking out and seeing them, Thomas is going to say that when God knows something, uh, God's knowledge is actually causal. Um, and it's not just causal of a couple of events, Explain you know, just that. good events. That, that, explain that. What do you what do we, what do you mean when you say uh, God's knowledge is causal? Well, it all stems. I mean, from God. God is the sustainer of everything that exists, of all creation, um, and and His knowledge when He knows something, it, it's different from our knowledge. We when we know something, we know things through forms in the world, right? We we abstract from uh, forms that are in the world. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. But that's how we know, passively in a sense, and that God doesn't know that way. God's knowledge doesn't come from anything outside of himself. When God um, knows something, it, it causes us, right? So he's the order in which, and, uh, this is really hard to explain, um, the order in which we know is obviously it's the opposite direction. Our knowledge is passive. His knowledge is actually active. And this doesn't go just for uh, some events. It goes for every event, right? So everything that comes to be, God not only knows, but in some sense God causes. Um, and that he, 
he actualizes. And if, if he didn't, then it wouldn't exist. Apart from his causal relationship to anything that is created, it would cease to exist. So given that, everything has to be, in, at least in some sense, caused by God. And when, God, when Aquinas talks about um, causing even human actions, he talks about down to the specific action. What this brings up, and what a lot of people are upset about, is, well, if, if that's true, then it seems like God's causing evil, because people do evil, right? God causes the action, then he, he's, uh, um, blame seems to attach to intentions, and uh, if, if God caused it, then he's responsible for it. Um, and even Paul Helms, in his uh, discussion will want, or Paul Helm, in his discussion in the Foreknowledge book, will talk about God causes some things uh, and permits other things. Uh, you're welcome to educate me on, on his views if you know more about, about his views than I do. But Aquinas' view is, 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 is more uh, strong than that, actually, I think. Okay, well, that's... What's maybe just quickly because I don't want to spend too much time. I want to kind of get it also get into open theism. Tell us what you see as some of the strengths and weaknesses, uh, maybe of the of the Thomistic view. Um, what I like about the Thomistic view is that it explains how God knows. So in the Molinist position, we have a problem explaining how God has middle knowledge. With Thomism, we don't have that. We we're back to natural knowledge and free knowledge. And God knows everything because He causes everything. So we don't have to. We don't have that grounding problem anymore. The other thing, though, is, is Aquinas' view of causality is uh, more nuanced, I think, than than most people in the discussion realize. And uh, I think, he, at least my understanding is, is that he has a view of what's called du- like a dual if agent causality. Like um, I cause an action, but God also causes my action. And a lot of people on the face of it will say, look, that's just a contradiction. You know, if I'm causing the action, then God is not causing the action. And if God's causing the action, then I am not causing the action. The contradiction is in, it would be entailed if we said God caused the action and did not cause the action. Or a contradiction would be entailed if I said I caused the action and I did not cause the action. Well, we're not saying either one of those. We're saying both I caused the action and God caused the action. Um, and I love that because I think it, it upholds both God's complete exhaustive foreknowledge of everything, God's complete sovereignty over everything, and it upholds uh, what I would consider to be some kind of genuine human free will. Um, and, yeah, the compatibilism really just is that, that uh, free will and determinism are compatible. There's a variety of types of compatibilism, so if I deny one type of compatibilism, I'm not necessarily de- denying all types of compatibilism. So in the sense that God determines everything and man is free, I, I would consider myself a compatibilist because, I'm a, a, to, again, to the best of my knowledge, I'm a Thomist. So I, I really like that view because I think it gives me everything that I, I, I want. Um, so that's what I think the advantage of. It, plus, it's, it's the classical, I think, statement of who God is, where even a lot of, even though he's, he's a, in the Catholic Church, at the height of its power and and, and the intellectual debates and whatnot, um, it's still stuck with us in the Protestant tradition as well. 
Okay. Let's uh got about thirty minutes left. Let's kinda let's kinda take a look at, at open theism. Could you kinda tell us maybe about what it is and um and uh kinda how it's maybe gaining a little bit in popularity and uh some of the reasons, I guess some of the attractive features that people see with it. And then maybe we can take a critical uh look as to some of the some of the problems with it. Okay. So I think Calvinism is largely um, uh, a group of people who are, they're, they're not real, did I say Calvinism? I'm, I'm sorry, open theism is largely a group of people who are uh, responding to what they see as Calvinism. In fact, Greg Boyd used to be a Calvinist. Um, and they don't, they didn't like the conclusions that they were coming to about uh, the nature of God and whether or not he's good and that kind of thing. Um, and what they ended up with was having to deny God's complete sovereignty and God's complete. They they wouldn't say that. They would. They don't think they do that. Um, but according to a classical understanding of God, I think I can say that they would deny that, and that they deny the uh, at least the classical doctrine of God's foreknowledge. And I think that's the most distinctive aspect that I think is most prominent that people see when they when they when they. Uh, thinking about open theism is that yeah they say God doesn't know the future exhaustively. Um, a lot of them are Arminians. A lot of them are people who are there, there's a lot of people who are more liberal leaning who hold that view. Um, some people are more conservative, but uh, that, that's I think generally where where it is today. It's in the 90, 1990s. It was a very uh, taboo. Subject and very uh, rejected, and these days it uh, seems to be a lot more accepted. The Evangelical Theological Society, for example, so it, it has gained yeah. a lot. Of... Yeah, I was, was going to say there are there are some people that that are in in um, ETS that uh, that hold that view, right? There was kind of a big. Yeah, um, and it's kind of a. It's, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh no, go go ahead. And it's not it's not uh, you know, just you know, no name people either. There's a lot of really intelligent people who are becoming open theists. Um so when I critique open theism, I'm not saying that you're you know, if you're an open theist you're stupid. I I do would say that it's not in keeping with the historic Christian faith. Um but people like Greg Boyd will just say that's okay. <laughs> they don't mind that. Um they but you know, as people who do mind that, I you know, I myself want to have uh, some continuity with what the church has taught. Um, I, that that bothers me. Plus, I don't think the view I, I don't agree with the view, given my my commitments to Thomism. So, what what exactly do do the open theists believe? What exactly is their their belief about God's uh, omniscience? Um, they would say the crowd. <laughs> Yeah, they, it's it's a weak omniscience. Um, it's an it's a an omniscience that says God can know. They they think they're in keeping with the classical statement of omniscience because they said, look, God can know everything that can possibly be known. The problem is is that uh, the future can't be known. Certain propositions about the future don't have any truth value, and it's not a, a contradiction to say, or it's not um, demeaning to God's character to say that God can't know things that are unknowable. Um, and it, it it sounds appealing because, as we said earlier, God can't create a square circle, right? So we we would agree with that. 
um, God can't uh, create a married bachelor. We would agree with that. And in fact, when we talked about the paradox of the stone, we said as much. We said, look, God can't, God can't create um, things that are logically contradictory. And that doesn't in any way impugn his um, omnipotence. Well, they're kind of taking that and applying it to God's omniscience and saying, look, there's just things about the future that God can't know. One of those being what free creatures would do. Why? Because free creatures act indeterminately. They don't act. They're not determined by antecedent conditions. So if, if you hold hold to libertarian and free will, which open theists do, um, they'd say, look, it's, it's not a problem. It's a contradiction to say that he does know those things. Kind of a kind of a clever move, isn't it, on their part? Oh, it's very they're very clever. Yeah, I, and what's what I think is so engaging about them is that they write in a very simple style. They also appeal to um, people who want, see scripture as authoritative and say, "Look, where do we go to get our doctrine? We go to scripture alone." Um, so they make that appeal and then say, "Does scripture really teach that God knows the the, the future infallibly?" And they conclude that, look, because, because classical theism developed um, within a culture that uh, imbibed Greek philosophy, we should reject that um, because that's a, a perversion. That's a, that's a perversion of uh, a true doctrine of God. And how do we get back to the real doctrine of God or a, a biblical doctrine of God? You go to the source. You go to the Bible. And this is this is one of those areas, uh, you know, because I talk to Christians a lot who just they don't like philosophy. They think it's you know a bad thing for Christians to engage in. But this is one of those issues where you're both tugging over the Bible. You know, the the uh, the classical guy is going to go to the scripture, and the open theist can go to the scripture. So, mm-hmm. oh, did you have any of the of the scriptures that are often used of the uh, the open theist? Yeah, and again, I'm I'm using Greg Boyd a lot because, honestly, and regrettably, I, I should be reading more of the uh, the other guys as well. Um, but he's the one I've probably read the most of, um, and he's he's a a popularizer of the view. Um, again, he's a he's a very sharp guy, um, but he's he tends to be more of a popularizer of the view, and uh, he basically says, look, there in scripture, the classical theists see both a motif two motifs in scripture, one of uh, future determinism, and that God knows everything, the end from the beginning and that sort of thing, but he doesn't know, or, but they don't take seriously the motif of future indeterminism um, or future openness. And what they're going to say is, you know, let's look at certain passages. We agree with these. When, in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, uh, it says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not done, not yet done. They would say, look, I agree with that. Yeah, God declares uh, the end from the beginning, and he'll interpret that, and Boyd will interpret that in terms of the, the Lord's ability to declare from ancient times things not yet done, right? He'll say that, that that's talking about God's sovereignty there not necessarily his knowledge. Genesis 15:13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Okay, so Boyd says, Yeah, of course God, God can know things in the future. He, he brought it about. He orchestrated it, and that's why he knows it. But he doesn't orchestrate everything, and the verse doesn't say that. He'll say, 
uh, in Matthew 26, truly, truly, 26:34. sorry, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, talking to Peter. Boyd says, look, this doesn't, doesn't tell me that God knows it exhaustively. He, what the scripture is doing here is giving a specific example of something that God knows in the future, which is perfectly compatible with my view. My, uh, as an open theist, he can just say, look, God does know certain things about the future because he brings them about, or because he knows someone's character, like Peter. He knows his character well enough to know what he would do. Now, whether or not you think that's feasible, this is um, at this point I'm just you know, explaining his reasons for the view. So he would say those passages are within the motif of future determinism and speak to God's uh, knowledge and omniscience, in fact. <clears throat> then he says, look, there's another motif of future openness that classical theists just don't take seriously. Um, he says in Genesis 6.6, 6, uh, God regrets a decision he made. He says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. First Samuel 15.11, God regrets making um, Saul, the king of Israel, he says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Numbers fourteen eleven, Boyd takes it that God doesn't know how long his people will persist in unbelief. He says, uh, how long will, will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? Boyd takes this to mean that uh, God doesn't know if they will persist in unbelief or not. Numbers 14, 12 through 20, uh, God changes his mind. God tells Moses that he's going to strike the Israelites with pestilence and disinherit them. Moses intercedes and God relents. He tells Moses, basically, I've pardoned you according to your word. <clears throat> so not only does God not, I mean, he, he actually goes beyond uh, talking about God not knowing the future into God making one decision and then changing his mind and making another decision, which is actually something other than just foreknowledge, uh, or uh, limited foreknowledge. He said, and I'll, I'll give one more passage, Jeremiah 3, 6 and 7. This is where uh, Boyd thinks that God thought something would happen, and then it didn't. Jeremiah 3, 6, 6 and 7 says, The Lord said to me in the days of the King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, the faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she had done all of these, all of this, she will return to me. But she did not return to me, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So he takes this, I thought, but it didn't happen, to mean that God thought something would happen in the future, but got it wrong. Okay. And what, again, what he's going to say is, well, you know, you guys have been influenced by Greek philosophy so much that you don't realize, or you're blind to the fact that scriptures, when you just read them in their plain meaning, um show you that God forgets things, that God doesn't know everything in the future that's going to happen, that God regrets, that God, um, and you know, goes on, on and on about things like emotions. God, God has emotions and that kind of thing. So how do we respond to some of these things? Well, I mean, I think at first... Um, and it's, let, me, let me just say real quick, it's not just the, the classical view that would reject this. The Molinist view would also reject this, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, okay. So how how would the... Talk to us a little bit about how, how to respond to some of these things, or how to think about some of these things. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you my take, because it's not going to be the same as other people. A lot of people would say, you know, go ahead and, and do some kind of uh, exegetical work and respond to Boyd on those grounds. And I think 
I think you can do that in that he's not necessarily taking the text perfectly, but there's a sense in which I agree with Boyd in that the text, I don't know if the text settles it completely. Um, I think, again, this is this is probably a little more controversial a point, and it is what it is. I, I, I'm sorry, if you don't agree with it, by all means, you know, uh, you can say so and let people know that this may not be a group view that they should hold. But I, I don't think that, that it can be settled on the text alone because everybody's referring to the text and the, the, the conclusions are actually um, more philosophical, I think, than than they are uh, just from a plain reading of the text or an, uh, that you can get from exegesis. <clears throat> so... What Boyd's doing here, I think, is that uh, he's trying to say that he doesn't have philosophical hermeneutical assumptions um, when he goes to the text. And the problem with that is that everyone has philosophical and hermeneutical assumptions when they go to the text. You know, when should I take a passage literally? The Bible itself doesn't give you a treatise on when you should take a passage literally. That's something that you come to the text with. Is there a fuller, you know, meaning to the text or the passage than the literal one? Um, that's something that you, you argue out and you use Scripture to kind of come to a conclusion on, but Scripture itself doesn't, again, offer a treatise on that. Uh, that's something you come to Scripture with. Um, again, these things are... Uh, let me just take a step back. These th it's not that these things aren't informed by Scripture. I don't think they're conclusively settled by Scripture, um, but th these considerations. Another one, do the words that I'm reading convey objective meaning, or do, they, do I bring... Uh, meaning to the text unavoidably. You know, those again are that's a philosophical consideration that that we come to the text with. In Boyd's case, he ta he comes to the table with a univocal view of God. So when we talk about God and I say God is good and man is good, we mean the same thing. And that's actually a more that's not just with open theists. That's actually more predominant than people realize is that people speak of God univocally. Um, when we speak of God regretting, he doesn't elaborate to say, well, God, when we speak of God re regretting, he me it means something slightly different because God is a different kind of being. No, he just says, look, God regrets. And what's the, refer what's the thing that we have to compare that with? Us. People regret. So implicitly, there's this univocal talk about God. Well, we forget. Yeah, God explain, forget. Explain that. Explain that, Matt. Explain the difference between... Uh, univocal, equivocal, and uh, and analogical. So when we talk about univocal terms, and I, um, it's like I said before, when I say the word good, it means the same thing. So um, uh, when I say Devin is good, and I say pizza is good, that's not univocal. When I say man is good and God is good, uh, if you mean the same, the exact same thing, when you say those, when you, uh, I'm sorry, when you speak of you and of God, that's univocal. God is good in the same way that I am good. Equivocal would be, Devin is good, and God is good, and the two terms "good" mean something completely opposite. They have, they don't mean the same thing at all. Analogical is, is that they, that there is an analogy between the, the terms. So there's. Uh, there is a sense in which when I say Devin is good and when I say God is good, there's a sense in which the term means the same thing, but it's, it's analogical. And I, I guess I could talk a little bit more about that. I just I want to make sure that if there's anything I need to clear up before I say anything else, 
you can tell. Yeah, me. I just wanted to make sure that the terms were were being used. So when you're when you're saying um, in the text when God is repenting uh, for such and such, or um, I'm thinking like I can't remember the exact that exact place in Scripture, but when they were sacrificing the children and God says that never even came into my mind. Um, right. How do yeah. you deal with those? Yeah, how would how would you deal with those? Uh, well, I deal with them that, uh, as either as some kind of anthropomorphism or metaphor. Um, so, in the case of God's emoting, well, I, I believe in impassibility, so I take a lot of those passages to be metaphor, um, and I take other passages to be anthropomorph- anthropomorphisms. Um, what's uh, what's uh, what's anthropomorphism? <laughs> There's a lot oh, of big words. Yeah, anthropomorphism. Describing something else in in human terms, um, in human-like terms. So when I when I talk about God um, uh, emoting in some way, then I, I'm not I'm not saying something that's exactly. Uh, I don't mean the same thing when I talk about that to God than when I say that you're emoting or you're you're. Having when you say emote, when you say emoting, you're meaning. Um, Emotion. emotion. Yeah. Sorry. Um, no, it's okay. All right. So that's how you would take some of those passages as more anthropomorphic and uh, in that. Yeah, and I'm just honest about it. Yeah, I, I do. I do come to my theology proper. It is informed by scripture, but it's also informed by philosophy. And uh, in fact, Greek philosophy and Aristotle uh, that just doesn't bother me. So I, I think Boyd's just rejection of gr- the the influence of Greek philosophy and Christian theology. So it's like, well, yeah, okay, it did influence Christian theology. Plato in- influenced certainly the early church a lot. I mean, a lot of the, the early creeds are are uh, stated in such a way that it's pretty clear that they were influenced by uh, Neoplatonic thought. So I, I just don't take it to be that big of a deal that we do that, and I think it's actually more honest if we recognize the fact that we do it and go from there and say, look, we will evaluate certain things philosophically, and we'll evaluate certain things exegetically, and to have some kind of way of determining which one we should uh, evaluate which way. So, What are some of the – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, So I was just going to continue on this, this, this uh, univocal God talk thing. Um, when Boyd just assumes that when the text talks about God forgetting or regretting and just assumes that that means the same thing, um, I, I think we can take examples of just from literature and explain why that's not legitimate to do. So consider the fact that when Tolkien writes about Frodo Baggins being afraid, right, we take Frodo's fear to be the same kind of emotion that we would have because in Tolkien's cosmology, hobbits are very similar to us. They're finite beings. They have an intelligence and disposition that's real similar to us. You know, they're, they're smaller and simple-minded and they like to drink lots of beer. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, they're persons in the same way that we're persons. If you're to read a story about an ant that's sad because he wants to go live in the big city, we automatically take that as an anthropomorphism, and we don't take it just because of the literary. We don't take it that way merely because of the literary genre. So. Um, we take the ant to be the ant who wants to go live in a big city as an anthropomorphism because um, because we know what ants are. I know ants don't have they don't get sad because they want to live you know go to jazz clubs and and 
dance until two o'clock in the morning. Um, so it's it's because I know something about the nature of the things that are being spoken of in the in the text that I I, I make judgments about whether I should take something uh, literally or take it uh, poetically or uh, anthropologic anthropomorphically or whatever. So and. I think what we can say to Greg Boyd is, look, if the differences between God and man are greater than the differences between an ant and a man, then it's not that big of a concession to say, look, when when we talk about God regretting, it might mean something slightly different than what, what it means when we say we regret. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't see the problem there or the obviousness of Boyd's assertion that we should just take the text plainly in the sense that we should just take it literally and in, in, in the common sense way. What do you think are some of the, the bad effects uh, of open theism? Why is, why is this an issue that is not, um, say, like the Thomism and Molinism? It's, why would you say it's not a good third option? Um, I, th- I probably in the, the easiest way would be to just say it, it makes God uh, more more like us, and um, it, it's a type of finite Godism. It's a type that God is finite, and that really actually undermines our arguments for God's existence. For example, you know, and the arguments that the Thomas gives aren't just arguments for God's existence, but they're also arguments for the attributes of God. Um, and to undermine those things, you know, I, the the road there is one. It's a it's a naivety in terms of uh, their own philosophical framework, um, but that naivety unfortunately can lead to just about anything because the, the there aren't there aren't the constraints there that that uh, are in uh, Thomism, Dominicanism, um, and Molinism. <clears throat> Okay, and um, kind of just just thinking about this, with I know, would you say that one of the one of the reasons um, that the people adopt open theism seems to be to kind of get out of the problem of evil as well? Yeah, that's certainly yeah. Boyd certainly does. Um, yeah, the, it, the problem of evil is so say, huge that they say, look, God, we have to diminish God in order to to resolve the problem. I, I don't think that's necessary. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say because somebody brought up about finite godism, and normally, and maybe I'm wrong, but I thought with finite godism, um, they normally limit God's um, power, omnipotence. So I'm curious, uh, even with the open theist view of saying for things like the Holocaust, um, once it's going on, you'd think that uh, even if open theism was true, um, God still is all powerful in their view, right? Uh, I'm sorry, can you say that again? Can you say that again? Yeah, in the open theist view, God is still all-powerful. Is that correct or no? The affirmation, they would would affirm that, yeah. But they would mean something different than what we mean. Because I'm just thinking, you know, um, even with the with the Holocaust, some horrible, you know, event like that, where they're going to say, well, God, you know, might not know the future, and this this stuff is coming, uh, or an actual, at least, you know, be actually um, 
going to happen. Uh, you would think they would still be able to go, if God is still omnipotent, that they could still punt to God's power to the evil. Did, did, do you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Um, yeah, hey. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was just, just, just curious about their view of God's omnipotence. So they're... Would they affirm it kind of as we affirm God's omnipotence, or you're saying they're kind of more of like the finite goddess? Yeah, I think they bring God into time as well. So, I mean, I, I, and this is a, a somewhat I'm more ubiquitous problem, more widespread problem than, than just with open theism, too. I'm sorry, I'm getting a phone call. Uh, so if you hear, oh, if I, oh, sorry. Um They, can, they think that they're affirming the same thing about God's omniscience or God's omnipotence or God's whatever because they just agree with the definition. But there's content behind that definition um, an understanding of the terms and the nature of what's being spoken of that isn't conveyed merely by the definition. Uh, you have to understand something of the metaphysics behind what's going on there in order to, to really affirm the same thing. So I, I think the the affirmation is a superficial affirmation of omnipotence and, and uh, omnipotence. And uh, let me let me ask you this because we we got about six minutes left. Um, what are what are some of the problems with um, like that five minutes? Uh, what's some of the problems with with the view of God being in time? Because I know do, do Molinists hold that view as well? Um, yeah, I mean Craig does. So, I mean, if you if if you don't have time to get into that, that's fine. I was just curious as to maybe what some of the problems are with that for open theism as far as God uh, entering time or. Um. Yeah, I mean, because it's it's broader than just the open theists who would who would say that, um, and they, they don't all say it in the same way. I think a lot of times open theists just kind of implicitly assume that. Not, I'm not saying like people like William Hasker, but even the more popular popularizers like Boyd, um, who will just say yeah. it'll be implicit in their assumptions about God that he's in time. Okay. And okay. yeah, I, I think that doing, you know, the problems of it is that it's false. I mean, I think, again, I, it's possible I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the case. So I think the problem is any any time you have a false view of God, whether you you know, you think you're doing it in the name of uh saving God from being responsible for evil, or if you're doing it in the name of some kind of pietistic notion that God must be X in order to be sovereign, I, I think either one of those claims, if it's not true, is not glorifying to God. It's what what's glorifying to God is what's true. Yeah, it's kind of our problem to work out, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, God is sovereign, and, um, you know, there's some sense of freedom, whether, you know, whatever view you, you take, and that's kind of for us to, to work out. There may be some mystery to that, yep. but uh, the liberty we don't have is to just start chopping the text or the attributes of God, um, because if you start messing with the omniscience of God, then ultimately all the other attributes go with it, right? As far as in the in the classical or Molinist view. Honestly, and again, this is peculiar to me because I'm, you know, I, I have an affinity for 
Thomas Aquinas, but I actually think if you deny simplicity, there's a lot of implications in terms of what you start, what starts dropping by the wayside in terms of God's attributes. Um, yeah. I really think that's a, a, a key, a key problem that's, uh, that leads to, to these kinds of things. I, I think actually open theism is sort of a natural progression there. And again, uh, there's a lot of very intelligent people, far smarter than I am that would disagree with that, but that, that's my take on it. Take uh, take a minute, Matt, and go ahead and, and wrap us up. I'm sorry, somebody keeps yeah. trying to. Call me. What was your question? Oh yeah, I was just going to say maybe you could take a take a minute, real quick, and just kind of wrap up your thoughts. Got about one minute, sixty seconds. Okay. Yeah, I would say. Look, I think the problem of foreknowledge for for those who you know haven't delved into it or wondering why is this even an issue is is largely the desire to want to uphold that God knows everything exhaustively and that people have free will, at least in some sense, not necessarily a libertarian sense, but at least in some sense man has free will and is responsible for his actions. And I think every orthodox view that um, that one holds has to take some kind of account of that and that uh, we as believers can disagree maybe on, on our accounts of that, but that, that, that we strive to uphold both of those I think is uh, imperative. Um, also, I think these these discussions are worth engaging in, and uh, I think it helps all of us to grow as we as we discuss them with each other. I help, think it helps all of us to grow in the Lord and helps us to grow as believers, and uh, it's also a lot of fun. And I really, really do appreciate you uh, coming and and uh, being with us today, and we look forward to having you uh, back on the show again and uh, tackle some other issues. And I uh, really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Not a problem. Anytime, we'll, we'll have you back on. Okay. So appreciate it, buddy. God bless. God bless. All right. Good show. Uh, a lot of good uh, good topics to deal with, a lot of good things to think on. And uh, we're uh, blessed to have uh, such good thinkers and people who are willing to come on the show, help us work through these issues. Next week, folks, I am setting up, um, trying to set up a debate um, on the issue of uh, hell. And uh, we did a show a while back uh, with Ted Wright on the doctrine of hell. And uh, we had some people uh, contact us, and they uh, believe in annihilationism. Uh, basically, that um, you're not going to, the, the people are not going to be in conscious uh, eternal hell, uh, but rather are annihilated. And so I'm trying to set up a debate, and it looks like it may happen next week. Uh, so we'll be looking forward to that. Hopefully that'll that'll happen. If not, uh, I've got uh, Lindsey Brooks from Apologetics.com. I think he's uh, going to come on, and we may be talking about slavery in the Bible. How do we deal with some of these issues? So thanks for joining us, folks. Uh, we look to being with you guys again. And uh, till next week, God bless. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. Yeah.
God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology.